In Upper Burma, near Mandalay, there is a famous monastery where hundreds of monks and novices are learning the scriptures. This monastery was established by the late Mahagandayon Sayado. He lived in the last century from 1900 to 1977. So he passed away some 30 years ago. This monastery is well known still nowadays for its strict discipline and also for the very high standard of the teachings. Mahagandayon Sayadom was a very learned uh, monk and he had also the gift to teach the Dhamma in quite simple words or easily understandable also for those who had no scriptural knowledge like to make it understand for an average uh, Burmese layperson. He also wrote many books which became quite popular throughout the country and one of his books is called Abhidhamma in daily life, which explains this rather complicated topic of Abhidhamma in easily understandable terms. So uh, as far as I know, I think this is the only book that has been translated into English. So as I said, the monastic discipline, the Vinaya, is kept quite strictly in this monastery. But Mahagandayon Sayado set up another list of ten points to be followed. And the first and most important point was to have a good heart. Other points included, for example, to keep one's room neat and tidy or to clip to keep the environment clean and tidy. Only the last and tenth point was to learn and study well. And we should remember that this was a learning monastery where the monks and novices uh, had to learn and memorize the scriptures. It's quite significant that 
such a learned and wise Sayadaw laid so much importance on having a good heart, giving it even more weight and importance than learning the scriptures well. In the explanation of these ten points, it is said that by having a good, good heart, one should avoid doing unwholesome actions. One should act, speak, and think with a good heart, always thinking of how to benefit others and ourselves, and always trying to avoid any harm on suffering for ourselves or others. So if our actions uh, spring from a good heart, then they will be good, beneficial and helpful. So behind these simple words, to be kind and to have a good heart, lies the very deep and profound teaching of Kama. Kama in Pali, karma in Sanskrit, literally means action, simply action. But in the Buddha's teaching, karma does not mean just any kind of action. It has a more specific meaning. Karma refers exclusively to volitional actions. Actions that are done with a volition or willed actions. So technically, when uh, looking at the different mental factors, it is the mental factor of Chetasika, which uh, denotes Kama. Chetana, sorry, it is the mental factor Chetana, one of the Chetasikas. <laughs> so Chetana denotes Kama. And Chetana is translated as volition or intention. And it is this volition or Chetana, which is the factor responsible for action. So it is this mental factor, Chetana, that is concerned with the actualization of a goal. So it's the volitional aspect. And in the commentaries, it is explained that Jetasika organizes its associated mental factors in acting upon the object. And the old commentaries, they use the analogy as the chief pupil who recites his own lesson and also makes the other pupils reciting their lessons so when, ish, when volition, chetana, starts to work on the object, then it sets the associated 
states to do their work as well. Volition, or Chetana, is the most significant factor in generating karma because it is Chetana, or volition, which determines the ethical quality of an action. And the Buddha, uh, he said, regarding karma, it is, it is volition, O monks, that I call karma. For having willed, one performs an action through body, speech, or mind. So karma, in its specific Buddhist sense, means wholesome or unwholesome volition, chetana. And this volition can take the form of a bodily, a verbal, or a mental action. Put in other words, it can be expressed by body, speech, and mind. When we talk about karma, we have to include another important aspect of the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching, and this is the law of cause and effect. This means that causes give rise to effects. Whenever there is a cause, there will inevitably be an effect or a result. And this is not only true for material processes or physical processes, but this holds also true for mental processes. All intentional or volitional actions produce some effects. And these effects or results are called vipaka in Pali. So kamma is one thing, that's the volitional action, and its result, the effect, is vipaka. The teaching of karma is an aspect of the natural law of cause and effect on, as it relates to our human behavior. It is the teaching of the law of cause and effect on the moral plane. And this teaching is not so much a teaching to blindly believe, but it's rather to uh, see it and understand it in operation to see how it affects our lives. As we know, the Buddha always encouraged people to investigate and inquire with an open heart so that one can come to a personal and direct understanding. In regard to their basic nature, actions, volitional actions, can be divided into two groups. Wholesome actions, 
or skillful actions and unwholesome actions, unskillful actions. The Pali word for the wholesome actions is kusala. Wholesomeness is kusala. Unwholesomeness is akusala. And so according to this law of cause and effect, <coughs> wholesome actions of a certain kind will produce wholesome effects of a similar kind. And unwholesome actions of a certain kind will produce unwholesome results of a similar kind. For example, if you have an apple seed and you plant it, then you will give uh, you will get an apple tree. No matter how much you pray or how many rituals you perform, this uh, seed of an apple will not grow into a mango tree. One time the Buddha had to make understand a young man this law of cause and effect of karma in the following way. One day a young man came in great distress to see the Buddha. He was weeping, crying, and to the question of the Buddha what had happened to him, he said that his father had died. And the Buddha asked him, well, um, will your crying and weeping bring back your father? And the young man said, no, no, I know that won't uh, bring back my father, but uh, please, can you do something for my father that we, he will get to heaven? You know, there are other ascetics and priests who do all kinds of marvelous rituals uh, after the death of a person, and with that they find entrance into the heavens. So please, do something for my father. And because this young man's grief was so strong and intense, the Buddha could not make him understand that he had not the power to do so. And so he used the following way to make him understand. He told this young man uh, to get two, two earthen pots. And when the young man heard that, he thought that the Buddha had consented to perform a wonderful ritual for his father. And so his heart lightened up and he went to the market to get two earthen pots. He came back to the Buddha and the Buddha told him to fill one pot with pebbles and to fill the other pot with butter. After that, the Buddha told him to uh, firmly seal the pots. Again, the man did it. After that, the Buddha told him to take the pots and throw them into the nearby pond. The man carried out the Buddha's order, and then the Buddha told him to get uh, a stick, and then 
to uh, hit the pots on the ground of the pond so that they break. And the young man uh, thought that this was going to be a really nice and good ritual which would uh, free his father's soul so that he could enter into the heavens. And so banging on the pots, they broke, and the pot with the pebbles, it stayed on the ground of the pond, and the pot with the butter, then the butter came up to the surface of the water, floating up there. And at that point, the Buddha said, Now, my young man, go and get it, get these ascetics and priests and tell them to come and now they should chant, O pebbles, O pebbles, come up, come up, O butter, O butter, go down, go down. And when the young man heard that, he was a bit perplexed and said, but venerable, this is not possible. The pebbles, they are heavier than water. They are bound to stay on the bottom of this pond. How could they come up? This is a natural law. And the butter is lighter than the water, so it's bound to stay on the surface of the water. How could it go down? This is a natural law. And so the Buddha said, Well, my young man, you have understood the natural law so uh, far. Now, if your father, during his life, if his actions were heavy and bad, then he is bound to go down. How could he come up? This is a natural law. If all his life long your father had performed actions which were light and good, then he is bound to go up. How could he go down? This is a natural law. The law of cause and effect is a natural process that operates independently of any lawgiver or any uh, higher power. The teaching of karma and its effects relate to our behavior, which is governed by the same natural laws. The law of karma is a law in itself, and it is self-subsistent in its operation ensuring that willed actions produce their effects in accordance with their ethical quality, just as sure as uh, seeds give rise to uh, give their fruit according uh, to their species. Even though we might not be able to recall our previous lives, be that spontaneously or through the supernormal powers, 
we can get an idea of the quality of our previous lives. This existence, this life, is the result of many actions performed in the past. If our wholesome actions are, if our wholesome qualities are well developed, and if we do not experience uh, very strong forms of suffering or misery, we can conclude that we must have performed quite a great number of wholesome actions in the past. If, however, unwholesome qualities predominate and if we experience a lot of physical suffering or mental anguish, then we can conclude that we must have performed quite a number of unwholesome actions in the past. However, the fact that we are human beings means that this is the result of a wholesome karma. A human rebirth would not uh, be possible with unwholesome karma. That would uh, produce birth in one of the lower realms. So this causal relationship, as it relates to our uh, behavior, the Buddha uh, summarized it like this. What you are is what you have been. What you will be is what you do now. I repeat it. What you are, what you are now in this life, is what you have been in the past. What you will be in the future, in the future existence, is what you do now, depends on your present actions. Or, in a slightly different form, if you want to know your past life, look into your present condition. If you want to know your future life, look at your present actions. I say it again. If you, if you want to know your present, sorry. If you want to know your past life, look into your present condition. If you want to know your future life, look at your present actions. A number of years ago, my teacher, Chamye Sayado, was teaching a retreat in Switzerland. I was assisting him in that retreat, helping also with translation from English into German. And in that retreat, there was one meditator who experienced uh, physical pain all the time. And so, in one interview, Saido asked a bit more about her pain, and she said that it was some chronic rheumatic pain that she had since the age of 25, and now she's in her 50s. So meaning that 
for more than 25 years, she was experiencing this chronic rheumatic pain. And she did not only experience it during meditation practice, but also in her uh, ordinary day-to-day life. She always had this pain, sometimes stronger, sometimes not so strong. And so then uh, Sayadaw commented that it was most likely that this pain was a result of some unwholesome action done in the past. Also, a number of years ago when I was teaching a retreat in Switzerland, I had another meditator who reported about uh, his pain that he experienced in the chest. And he also told me that it was not only during meditation retreats that he experienced this this pain, but also in his day-to-day life. And trying to tell him that he maybe should not focus so much on the pain or that he should resort to metta meditation practice, a form of samatha meditation to uh, ease the pain or get away from the pain. He said that he had tried all of this. Apparently, in the previous year, he had been in Burma meditating on the side of Upandita in his uh, forest monastery. And there, too, the teacher had advised him to do this or that or that, but he was always uh, in pain. And later on, when I met Jamie Sayado again, I related this case and asked what he, Jamie Sayado, would have advised for this meditator to do. And again, he uh, said, maybe not focus too much on the pain or ignore it or really focus on it for an extended period of time or do metta. And so I told Jamil Sayero that actually this meditator had tried all of these different approaches but that over the many years the pain was still with him. And again, Jamil Sayero commented that this, then in this case, must be the result of some <coughs> unwholesome karma. So given the importance that we should perform wholesome <coughs> actions and avoid unwholesome actions, what are the criteria to decide whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome? What kind of deeds are considered to be good, beneficial, helpful? What deeds are considered to be bad and not beneficial? So wholesome actions are those actions (coughs) which are skillful, beneficial, good, which are based on understanding those actions which remove 
affliction and suffering. Wholesome actions are those actions based on non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. Or in other words, they are based on generosity or renunciation, on loving-kindness, compassion and on wisdom or understanding. <coughs> and the party word for wholesome, wholesome actions is kusala. Then unwholesome actions are those actions which are harmful, which are unhealthy, which are based on ignorance. Those actions which increase suffering and affliction. And unwholesome actions are those actions based on greed, hatred and delusion based on the three unwholesome roots. And the party term for this kind of action is akusala. So the bottom line is if an action is based on any of the unwholesome, act, unwholesome roots, greed, hatred and delusion, then it's an unwholesome action. And if any action is based on the three wholesome roots, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, then it is a wholesome action. Actions based on generosity, loving-kindness and wisdom. Generally speaking, wholesome actions lead to wholesome effects, results, and unwholesome actions lead to unwholesome effects or results. And these results can be immediate or they can bring forth after some time. Later on in this life, in our next existence or in any uh, future existence. The time span in which a karma can ripen and produce results is beyond our imagination. In this long cycle of birth and death, samsara, we have committed uncountable actions, wholesome and unwholesome ones, and they all have left a potential to produce a result. So for a karma to ripen, to produce a result, there must be the right conditions and circumstances. Otherwise, it's not possible that it will produce a result. So to illustrate this, the simile of the mango seed is used. If you leave a mango seed in a dark room on a concrete floor, then not much will happen to this mango seed. But if you take this seed out and put it into fertile ground, water it and with enough warmth, sunshine, then it won't take long before these mango seeds start, seed starts to sprout and grow into a mango tree. 
So for a mango seed to sprout, the necessary causes and conditions are fertile ground, water, and sunshine. And in the same way, there must be the right conditions and circumstances for our karma to ripen. The way karma produces an effect is not a linear or a mechanical one. It's actually a very intricate and complicated uh, process which is only fully understandable by a Buddha, an omniscient person. The Buddha said that karma is one of the four unthinkables, something one cannot uh, access by thinking about it. He said that the understanding of the results of karma was beyond the comprehension for an ordinary uh, normal person. And he said that if one tries to figure it out by thinking about it, that one's head would explode. (laughs) Karma is a mental process that never happens in isolation. It always happens in a certain context. There are many, many factors contributing to a bodily, a verbal, or a mental action. And when a karma ripens, it also happens within a certain context. There are outer circumstances as well as inner circumstances, which condition the way a karma ripens. And the Buddha used the following analogy to explain this point. If one puts a lump of salt into a cup of water, then the water will become very salty and undrinkable. However, if one takes this same lump of salt and puts it into the river Ganges, then the water of the river Ganges will not become very salty. It will not become undrinkable. So, for example, if a virtuous person happens to commit an unwholesome deed out of negligence, but then as the conduct of this person is grounded in virtue, the chance that this unwholesome karma will be able to ripen is much smaller than it would be for a person whose conduct is not grounded in virtue. Out of his great compassion, Mahakaruna, the Buddha was constantly urging his nuns and monks, as well as lay disciples, to cultivate that which uh, leads to happiness and well-being and to abandon that which leads to misery 
and suffering. In his discourse called It Can Be Done, the Buddha stressed the fact that the the unwholesome can be abandoned and the wholesome can be cultivated. In that discourse, the Buddha said, Abandon what is unwholesome. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefits and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. Unwholesome actions do not only refer to those actions that are mentioned in the precepts and from which we should abstain. Even though an action is not immoral, it still can be unwholesome. For example, to angrily bang a door is not immoral. It's not against the precept. It's not against the law. It does not directly hurt yourself or another person. But because this action is based on anger, one of the unwholesome roots, it's an unwholesome action. Or another example, to greedily reach for a second piece of chocolate cake and then eat it, this is not an immoral act. It never says in the precepts. One should refrain from eating cake. So no obvious suffering is inflicted at that moment, neither to yourself nor to another person. But because this action is based on greed, again one of the unwholesome roots, it's considered to be an unwholesome action. Or to look once more at the beautiful flower on the way to the meditation hall, this is also not an immoral action. But because this action is based on strong desire, strong desire to have yet another look, uh, that's why it's an unwholesome action. It's based on greed. And on top of that, By uh, acting upon it, one is also uh, strengthening the habit to act on every desire. 
So one is solidifying this conditioned response. From this you come to see that the classification in wholesome and unwholesome actions has much bigger implications than the classification in moral and immoral actions. So the words wholesome and unwholesome are not limited to a narrow uh, moral application. The scope uh, is much, much bigger. But it's a heartening assurance when the Buddha said that what is beneficial can be cultivated and what is harmful can be abandoned. As we have seen, it's this mental factor called Chetana, volition or intention, uh, that is concerned with the actualization of the goal. Chetana organizes its associated mental factors in acting upon the object. So it's Chetana, volition, which is responsible for an action to take place. When we have sharpened penetrating mindfulness and a deep enough concentration, we can observe this volition or intention during our meditation practice. Especially in connection with movements, we can become aware of that mental impulse which actualizes the movement or makes the movement happen. For example, in the walking meditation, let's say we are standing at the beginning of our walking path, noting the standing posture and the touching sensations of the feet with the ground. And then we take the first step. But how did this first step or the lifting of the foot come about? Who gave the order to lift the foot? On close observation, we see that just before the actual movement of the foot, there is a mental impulse. There is this arising of a mental state that initiates or causes the movement to take place. So this mental impulse is the volition or the intention to lift the foot. It's like a flash um, lightening up in the mind. And as soon as this volition has occurred, then the foot starts lifting. Then the lifting movement starts, starts to take place. Or another example uh, in the daily activities, the movement of the hand. Let's say we are sitting at the table and in front of us we have a cup of coffee 
or T. And then we may notice the desire to take a sip of this coffee or tea. So this desire, this thought pops up in the mind. But at that time, we still sit there at the table with the hands resting on our lap. But then, at one point, the hand starts to move towards the cup. And how did this movement come about? Who did give the order uh, to move? Why did the hand all of a sudden start to move? It, it is because there was a volition or an intention to do so. A brief moment before the actual movement started, the intention to move was occurring in the mind. And so it was this intention, this volition, that caused the hand to move. And likewise, it's with all of our uh, movements in the body. All of our movements in the body uh, are caused by the intention to move. Unless there is an intention, the body would not move. Without an intention, the body would be motionless, like a dead log. Even before such small movements like the blinking of an eye or the swallowing of saliva or some food is preceded by an intention. So when the meditation practice deepens, then we can see all these intentions before the actual movements. Meditators who have reached this stage of practice are quite amazed to see that so many intentions are happening almost all the time. And if one is able to observe these processes, to see the intentions in the mind and then notice the bodily movement, then it becomes so clear that it is the intention that causes a movement to happen. One sees that there is nobody who makes the arm move. There is nobody who lifts the foot. There is no uh, eye. There is no self. No eye, no self. That is the agent of this movement or that gives the order to move. By observing uh, the movements very closely, it feels as if the arm is lifted by itself, or it seems that there is no effort needed to lift the arm. And so meditators come to see that this is just a natural process happening according to its own causes and conditions. So, 
then one sees very clearly that the intention to move the arm is the cause and the resulting movement of the arm is the effect. That's all. Very simple. Very straightforward. Or the intention to lift the foot is the cause and the actual lifting movement of the foot is the effect. Or the intention to swallow the food is the cause and the resulting swallowing then is the effect. In this way, meditators come to see this causal relationship of phenomena very clearly. They can see it very uh, directly in their own body-mind process. When mindfulness is quite strong and uh, concentration deep, then meditators can feel quite strange, for example, in the walking meditation. As they observe the intentions and the movements happening one after another, um, it seems as uh, this happens quite automatically. It feels as if nobody was walking. It is as if they are just watching the foot as it is lifted, almost by itself, then pushed forward almost automatically, and then dropped as if by itself. And with this experience, it becomes quite obvious that there is no I, no self, which is the agent of the movement, but that the agent uh, of the movement is this intention. So based on a direct and personal experience and understanding of the cause-effect relationship, then it will become increasingly clear that other processes must also happen in the same way. For ordinary people, this causal, causal relationship is not obvious at all. Usually people are run by their habitual and conditioned patterns, acting blindly upon all their uh, intentions. For example, there is the sight and the smell of a piece of cake on the table, or, you know, it could be anything uh, that you like, olives or baked potatoes or your favorite greens. So, seeing that cake, that uh, these olives on the table, causes a pleasant feeling. And so then, on account of this pleasant feeling, there arises to wish, the wish to have the cake or the olives. And then, on account of this desire to have the cake or the olives, there arises the intention to stretch out the arm. And then this intention causes the arm actually to reach out and grab the cake 
or the olive. Or another example. Imagine uh, you're doing walking meditation and all of a sudden there is a loud sound behind. And so hearing this loud sound ca uh, causes curiosity to arise or a desire to know uh, what the sound is. And this curiosity or desire to know then causes the intention to turn the head and the intention then actually causes the turning movement of the head. So let's have a closer look at the first example. Let's take the piece of cake on the table. So seeing and smelling this cake gives rise to a pleasant feeling. As we have seen before, each experience is accompanied by one of the three feelings, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So we cannot prevent a feeling from arising. But a feeling must not necessarily give rise to desire. If the seeing and smelling of the cake was mindfully noted together with the pleasant feeling, then the process would have simply stopped there. Because of strong mindfulness, then desire could not have arisen. But without mindfulness, desire naturally arises in an untrained mind. Then the desire in turn gives rise to the intention to stretch out the arm. And even here, if the desire for the cake was mindfully noted, then no intention would have arisen. But because the desire had not been noted, then the intention to stretch out the arm and get the cake arose. The intention to stretch out the arm is a distinct mental process that can be observed when mindfulness is strong. If it is not noted, then immediately the movement starts to happen. However, if the intention to stretch out the arm is observed and noted, then one is, then one is not bound to blindly carry out the action. In that moment of noting this intention, there is the last opportunity to withhold the movement, the last moment to not engage in that movement. And this is actually a moment of choice, of freedom. We have the choice of freedom to do what is wholesome, beneficial and good. Or we have the choice and the freedom to abstain from that which is unwholesome, unskillful or evil. So even if we have been propelled this far in our habitual response, 
at least here, with noting the intention, we would have a last chance to pull the emergency brake. Volition or intention, chetana, is a mental factor. And as we have seen, mental processes are happening with an incredible speed. And it takes some time until the mind becomes concentrated and clear enough so that these mental processes can be clearly noted and observed. In connection with bodily movements, we can get some indication of how good our mindfulness actually is. We might think that our mindfulness is pretty good, that it is strong and continuous throughout the day. We think that we can uh, observe all the thoughts and other objects that arise in the sitting meditation, in the walking meditation, and also during the mindfulness in daily activities. However, if we notice that the head has already turned around after hearing the sound, then we get an indication that we missed to notice a mental process, namely the intention to turn the the head around and that we missed to note the actual turning of the head, the physical uh, process. Or if we notice that our hand is already touching the handle of the door as we make the last step approaching the door, then we not only missed to note the intention to lift our arm, but also we missed to observe the actual movement of our arm. Or If we notice that we are looking at the bird in the bush near the walking track, then we get an indication that we missed to note the intention to look at the bird as well as turning the head over to look at this bird. So in this way, in connection with our movements, we can actually very clearly observe this causal relationship. We can see how intentions cause movements. And we can see that this intention is just a natural process. It can happen without a self. It can happen without an I. But for this, uh, we must observe very closely and very carefully. So when we can observe this law of cause and effect in ourselves, then it's no longer an abstract idea. But because we uh, observed it, experienced it in ourselves, it becomes a felt 
and lived experience. And as such, then it becomes really real. It takes on reality because it is based on direct and personal experience and not only on mere uh, belief or not only on mere intellectual understanding. To finish this talk about karma, I'm going to tell you the anecdote of the samurai and the Zen master. In my next talk on Wednesday, I will continue to talk about karma and give some more explanations and illustrations about the workings of karma and its results. So now, the anecdote. A samurai enters the temple and asks the Zen master, does heaven and hell really exist? The Zen master only replies, let me alone, don't bother me with such questions. The samurai repeats the same question again and the Zen master again tells him <coughs> to let him alone. Now the samurai gets impatient and lifting his sword he puts forth the same question once more. Finally the Zen master replies, now we are standing in front of hell. The samurai gets scared, puts the sword to the side and prostrates in front of the master on the ground. Then the Zen master says, and now you are standing in front of heaven. May all of you be able to cultivate what is good and wholesome and to abandon what is unwholesome and unbeneficial. Thank you.